In this episode, we discuss some sensitive content around death and grief. There are also some brief mentions of the contemplation of suicide, so please only listen if you feel able to. If you're in the UK and need support, please contact the Samaritans at 116123. Other international numbers are available at findahelpline.com. On August 13th, 1999, a headline in the Asia Times read, BHP admits OK Teddy Mine is an environmental disaster. This podcast tells the story of another mining disaster in another place and time, but I want to tell you about OK Teddy because the same players are at the heart of it. So let's rewind the clock to 1981. In Papua New Guinea's western province, just north of the tip of Queensland, Australia, the Star Mountain Range rises. From one of its peaks, Mount Fubilan, the OK Teddy River springs forth. It follows its course down the range, through the forests, and into the Fly River Delta, which empties into the Gulf of Papua. In the 1960s and 70s, large amounts of gold and copper were found in Mount Fubilan. And in 1981, BHP began the construction of a mine to extract these minerals. Within three years, Mount Fubilan was reduced from a towering peak of over 2,000 metres to a three-kilometre-wide open pit. The newly named OK Teddy Mine started operations in 1984. Shortly after mining began, its tailings dam collapsed following an earthquake in the area. BHP claimed it would be too expensive to rebuild the dam. So instead, they persuaded the government to allow them to dump the mining waste straight into the river. And this wasn't a temporary solution. They did this every day for more than 10 years. For over a decade, they dumped 80,000 tonnes of mining waste into the river each day. Over 40,000 residents downstream were affected by the contamination. The fish that sustained the population almost disappeared. In the early 1990s, the Australian Conservation Foundation reported that this area of the river was, quote, almost biologically dead. The added strain on the river also caused flooding that killed off crucial crops, including taro, banana and palm trees. Sam Gamoga is a resident of the region. His whole life has been impacted by the actions of BHP. I have lived here since my birth in 1970. And having to live my life with the mining activities, I have been experienced and lived with the experiences that has really changed our way of living. Before the activities of the mine, our flyover system was cleaned. Just before 1982, when the mine started, and up until now, we have seen our flyover has greatly changed in terms of sediment build-ups. 
and we are the living experience of the Octedi mine currently and what we experience is the change of our lifestyle. Despite stark physical evidence that the mine was affecting the river and surrounding areas, BHP ran a marketing campaign in 1995. It claimed the millions of tonnes of mining waste it dumped into the OK Teddy River each year were, quote, virtually identical to natural sediment. Now, that statement is particularly important for you to remember. Virtually identical to natural sediment. Less than a year later, as part of the 1996 settlement of a class action suit against BHP for the damage they had caused in Papua New Guinea, the company was forced to commission an environmental report to assess the damage of their mining activity there. When they released the findings of the report in August of 1999, BHP's managing director and chief executive officer, Paul Anderson, said, With the benefit of these reports and 2020 hindsight, the mine is not compatible with our environmental values and the company should never have become involved. In 2015, weeks after the Fundao Dam collapsed in Brazil, the UN published a report stating that the mud released into the Doce River was toxic. BHP responded with the following statement. The tailings that entered the Rio Doce were comprised of clay and silt material from the washing and processing of earth-containing iron ore, which is naturally abundant in the region. Naturally abundant in the region. Sound familiar? I'm Liz Bonin and this is Dead River, Episode 3, Patterns of Abuse. On the night of the Fundao Dam collapse, Samarco's then-CEO, Ricardo Vescovi, released a video on social media, saying, We are very dismayed by what happened, but we are absolutely mobilised to contain the damages caused by this tragic accident. Samarco, which is owned by Valle and BHP, said it had 600 people working in the affected areas, liaising with victims, helping those made homeless, and supplying drinking water. But for the people affected, it didn't feel like a mobilisation was taking place. From their point of view, the mining company was struggling to respond to a crisis that they had created. On the first night of the disaster, just over three kilometres away from the broken dam, residents of Bento Rodriguez slept out in the open, next to their now destroyed and buried homes. Paula Alves who acted as a human siren, racing to Bento on her motorcycle ahead of the mud to raise the alarm, slept huddled next to her son, her sister and parents. On the second day, they were taken to a holding centre in the nearby city of Mariana, where they waited to be assigned temporary housing. They scattered mattresses everywhere. There were scraps of bedding and blankets thrown around. Some people lay down and some managed to sleep. But others were afraid there would be more mud. 
Pamela Isabel was initially moved into housing alone while she waited to find out the fate of her family. It was very difficult, you know. After the collapse, we were put in a hostel. We went into the hostel right before Christmas. So I was without my family because my mother had been put into her own home and my sisters each had set up their own new houses. So I was on my own a lot. Nicholas had just come out of the hospital and Wesley was still in hospital. So it was just the two of us. The mining company then put me up in a huge 10-room house. But the two of us only stayed in one bedroom and used the kitchen and the bathroom. Her son and husband made a full recovery. But her five-year-old daughter, Manu, was killed in the deluge of toxic mud. While some people waited in holdings and hostels for somewhere more permanent to live, residents down the length of the Dose River waited for clean water. On the 5th of November, we heard a van coming round and making an announcement. And um, I said to Shayla, there's a van going around saying that we need to store as much water as you possibly can. That's Jonathan Knowles. Jonathan is originally from Harrogate in England, but in 2015, he and his family were living in Governador Valadares, a city built on the banks of the River Dose. We managed, well, we stored as much water as I could. I cleaned the, the water tank out and put in, uh, water in because you get sediment in the bottom. We had a Ibic container that I was going to use for fish. <laughs> Um, so I hadn't, luckily I hadn't cut that thing in half. I was about to. So that stored about another thousand litres of water. So we had about 2,000 litres of water and a couple of barrels. And it's really when you discover the value of water, and I still remember the lessons today, you know, measuring water out into a cup to brush your teeth and then having a shower. You, you pour a cup full of water over yourself and then you, you lather up and then you, you use as little as water as possible, but you catch all the water in a bucket and then you reuse that soapy water to wash the floor with or to, you know, uh, to wash clothes with or something. On November the 10th, a state of public disaster was declared in Governador Valadares. San Marco was ordered to fund water trucks and make daily deliveries to each affected household, which amounts to 280,000 people who relied solely on the Dose River for their water supply. They were ordered to deliver water to each household, but they said that was impossible. And so they kept turning up at different estates with, with water. And it caused huge queues. And they always turned up around midday, always at the hottest part of the day. And there would be queues at least a kilometre long, maybe two kilometres. And when you got to the front of the queue, there was a limit on the amount of water. And it was water per person. And people were saying, look, my husband's at work, my wife's at work, you know, I need the water for them. And they say, oh, well, everybody's going to say that, aren't they? 250 kilometres away in Bahalonga, 
Residents' homes were flooded and damaged, but unlike the residents of Bento Rodriguez and Paracatu de Baixo, no one came to take them to temporary housing. After I went to see what had happened to my house, I went down to the city square and it looked like a, it looked like a war scene. People were walking around in a daze and there was mud and debris everywhere. We could see the helicopters hovering over the city. All around me there were people who were so lost, they didn't know where to go or who to turn to. That's Laura Freitas. She was born and raised in Bahalonga. During the recordings, she showed us photos that she had taken shortly after the dam collapse. In one photo, covering the entire town square is mud. It looks thick and wet, and there are branches and rocks sticking out of it. There's a man in the photo, wading through the mud to hand something to a neighbour. The mud is up to his knees. The first time I went to Bahalonga, I think it was some months after the disaster. The mud was turned into dust. That's Cristina Serra, a Brazilian journalist and the author of the book, The Tragedy of Mariana. And you can see the mark of the, the mud in the buildings, the houses, the church, not buildings, Bahalonga, is, it's really a very small city. When I say buildings, I'm talking about two, two stories, or three stories at, at the most. But it, it was possible to see the, the mark of the, the mud. And the mud, it was dried by the, the sun, the, the hot weather. And everything was covered in, in dust. Samarco sent trucks and tractors to move the mud out of the town square. They painted the walls so you couldn't see the lines where the mud had reached. And they took most of the mud and dumped it on the outskirts of town in a much poorer community. One of the residents who still lives in this community is Dora. Depois que ela secou um pouco, né? When they first moved the mud into our neighborhood, it was still damp. But soon it started to dry out, and there were these big trucks that would come and dump more and more mud. There was this tractor that was in charge of compacting it. And it was just such a disaster. It created a cloud of dust that got inside our houses. You know, our floors were slippery with dust. I wanted to clean my house in the afternoon after they stopped working, but even at night, they didn't stop. They worked all night. The mud was full of ripped-up vegetation and dead animals. And as it sat in the sun, it started to smell. It was the smell of rotten things, right? It was really rotten stuff. And we lived for so long with that smell, there was so much suffering. Nobody even came to ask us how it was affecting us. Nobody showed up. Further down the River Doce, over 400 kilometers away from Bahalonga, in the state of Espirito Santo, the Tupinquium indigenous community was trying to process the death of their beloved river. 
Eduardo Carlos is a member of the Tupinquiam community who live near the popular town of Urgencia. His grandfather founded the community he grew up in. Before the dam collapsed, Eduardo would fish every day to provide food for his community, keeping some to sell in the local markets to make a living. For me, a normal day was one where I could uh, take my fishnets down to the lakes or to the river and I could catch healthy fish. I never worried about quality of the fish because I knew they'd all be healthy. I knew when I placed my net in the waters that the catch would be good. I knew that while I was fishing. Mm, it was okay to have a swim in the river to cool down. That was a normal day for me. But now, obviously, I can't fish anymore. I just can't. I can't just throw my hook in or throw my net in. I can't let the water touch my hands uh, because the river is so contaminated. My name legitimate Guarani name is Weraquarai, and I live in the village of Boa Esperança, located in the municipality of Aracruz, which is in the state of Espírito Santo. Antonio Carvalho, known in his community as Weraquarai, is an indigenous elder from the Guaranese community. Before November 2015, their land in Aracruz provided them with food, water, a living, everything they needed. We used to use the river to fish. We used it to teach our children how to swim and how to sustain themselves. We taught them what they could do in the river and what the river would do for them. Our river. It was a place to teach, to use for our leisure, to use for our life. Depois, depois da tragédia, já para nós já não parece que. And then this tragedy has caused a barrier that prevents us from doing any of that. It has created a barrier for our well-being, and it has removed our freedom to be human. We don't understand how a human being created by God can can be treated this way. We feel like we're being treated like things instead of humans. Not only were our bodies affected, our spirits and our souls were also affected. Because to us, nature is connected to our soul and and the degradation. The degradation of nature for us is the same of destroying our soul. While some of the victims of the disaster had early interactions with the emergency responders and ground teams that San Marco had deployed, 
These support teams were mainly sent to places where houses were damaged or completely destroyed or where municipal water systems were threatened. But in areas where people lived more simply and got their water straight from the river, no one was deployed to check on them. When we spoke to some members of the indigenous groups that were affected, like Eduardo and Antonio, we asked them if they had any contact with San Marco, BHP or Vale. Every single one of them said no. Two weeks after the dam collapsed, the then chairman of BHP, Jack Nasser, stood in front of the company at their annual general meeting and he said, I commit to you that we will find out what went wrong. I'm going to do my best now to distill to you exactly what Jack found out. San Marco, BHP and Valle commissioned a group called the Fundao Tailings Dam Review Panel to create a report on why the dam collapsed. Now, this report is separate to the investigation into who was responsible for the dam collapsing, but we'll get to that next. The Fundao Dam was a tailings dam. The purpose of this dam was to store tailings, or mining waste, produced from Samarco's iron ore mining operation. When you picture a dam, you might think of a large water reservoir held behind a huge concrete structure. But this tailings dam was built into the natural landscape. From above, it looked like a large open-air stadium with steps cut into the earth itself, cascading down for 110 metres. Above the steps were large, flatter areas where the tailings were being actively deposited. The dam held two separate sets of mining waste. Dry material made up of mostly sand and wet matter made up of what mine engineers refer to as slime. The sand was generally meant to be loose and dry and using it as part of the construction of the dam allowed for water to drain through it. The slime was closer in consistency to clay and water doesn't drain well through this type of material. So any water that builds up close to slime can impede proper drainage. Perhaps a useful way to visualize the structure of the dam is by comparing it to a Toblerone chocolate bar. Imagine you broke off a four-piece section. The first triangle would contain slime deposits. The second would be a divider made up of earth. The third would contain sand deposits. And the last triangle would be another earth divider that keeps the sand contained. This is the barrier that makes up what we can see of the dam. The dividers that are made of earth are called dikes and they essentially keep the sand and slime tailings separate. Over time and with increasing production, the sand sections grew taller. Now, instead of increasing the size of the dikes that kept the slime and sand separate, San Marco decided to employ an upright construction method. Stay with me here because this is where the problems really begin. Ideally, with an upright construction method, 
the slime and sand deposits remain separated by the sheer volume of sand deposited and the different properties of the dry sand and the wet slime. So in principle, you can keep adding sand with the sand piles growing taller or more upright. But a few years before the dam collapsed, problems were developing with the drainage system and the sand became saturated. So now the two different wastes were closer in physical properties and this created the ideal environment for the slime to begin to shift towards and mix with the sand. Over the years, some work had been done to repair the drainage system, but ultimately it wasn't good enough. The decision to ramp up production led to an increase in pressure and an increase in water content until eventually the whole structure liquefied and... collapsed. To understand the, the, the disaster, you have to go through the four investigations because they investigate different aspects of the disaster. So we have first, immediately after the disaster, you have the police civil. That's the police, detectives and agents that investigate a case when there are dead people. You have the, the investigation by prosecutors of the state of Minas Gerais, and you also have the Federal Prosecutional Service. Why federal? Because the, the disaster uh, went through two states, Minas Gerais and Espírito Santo. In this case, you also have the investigation of the federal police uh, because it, it's a disaster that involves the mining issue and everything related to mining issue in Brazil, it's a federal question. The process of litigating this case is convoluted and it's based on specific power systems that are deeply entrenched in Brazilian society. This is best illustrated by the fact that many of the representatives and politicians who were part of the investigating boards and committees for this case received political donations from the Valet Group. So it was very common to have companies installed in a certain area to sponsor the top candidates. That's Dr. Andresa de Souza Santos. She's a professor at King's College. Her research specializes in the mining towns of Brazil. Whoever would win, these persons have been sponsored by the, the local companies who are acting the area. We can still see why for some mayors it is important to have like such big companies in the area. It is important because it brings resources for the area, it brings like the, the royalties of mining. Uh, are paying to the municipality and, then, and, and some of the neighboring towns. And with that, they can decide what they will do with the resource. And, and without the mining, then they, they have a, a lack of income. 
During our production, an interviewee and resident of Rio de Janeiro who asked to remain anonymous told us this. In Brazil, the mining companies have more power than the government. They have more power than God. Almost a year after the dam collapsed, the Brazilian federal prosecution charged people associated with the mining companies with qualified homicide and environmental crimes. This included the then CEO of Samarco and board members of BHP and Vale. As part of the lawsuit, they also demanded that 155 billion Brazilian reals, or 32 billion US dollars, be paid in compensation by Samarco and its joint owners, BHP and Vale. The federal police, they did a very good investigation. They got all the documentation. Oh, it's a huge level of paper, all the documentation, all the reports of the board of the company. And also there, you can see that the the people at a high level of the companies, they knew that there were at least some problems with that tailing stem. Within this huge level of paperwork, some facts stand out that help us to understand why the dam failed. The minutes from a 2009 BHP board meeting reveal that the company was aware the dam was experiencing, quote, seepage due to failings in the drainage system. And the meeting notes say that the board was, quote, worried about the efficacy of the proposed solution to repair it. The leaks were an early sign of weak points developing in the dam, so a team was formed to monitor the problem and report back to the board. A year later, the report stated that the leaks were caused by a construction fault and that the works were underway to fix the problem. Despite these promises, ongoing issues were still being reported. In 2011, an independent tailings review board advised Samarco to improve the dam's integrity and to put an emergency plan in place for residents living beneath it. They even recommended that Samarco look into the possibility of, quote, relocating downstream communities, including those in Bento Rodriguez. Samarco didn't do any of this. With problems persisting, in 2013, a technical report was commissioned by state authorities as part of Samarco's operational license renewal process. The report recommended an emergency plan for license approval, quote, given the presence of nearby Bento Rodriguez. But board meetings following these reports don't record any further discussions about this. And yet, Samarco's operational license was renewed by the National Department of Mineral Production. In June 2015, four months before the dam failed, two external inspectors and a Samarco employee observed more leaks at the Fundao Dam. Even after years of reported problems, in August of 2015, at a BHP board meeting, 
it was recommended that the company should study the potential to raise the dam wall further, so as to, quote, delay requirements for a new dam until 2023. And why would raising the dam wall help? It certainly wouldn't fix the leaks. The company wanted to raise the wall for the same reason journalist Christina Serra says the dam was built, to increase production. Samarco needed another tailings dam because they were increasing the production of ore, iron. So they needed another place to deposit the mining waste. Put simply, more production equals more profit. Halting production to take the time to repair a leaking dam or to build a new, safer dam would mean a drop in profits. We asked BHP and Samarco for comment, and they declined. We asked Valet for comment, and they responded with the following. Vale deeply regrets what happened in Mariana and has been in constant dialogue with the Krenak people to make emergency support possible, including the supply of drinking water. The reparation process is being carried out by the Renova Foundation in accordance with the Settlement and Conduct Adjustment Agreement signed with the Brazilian Justice Authorities. Currently, this case is still being pursued in Brazil and will explore the active legal cases against Samarco, BHP and Vale in the next episode. What these records show, however, is that clearly serious problems were detected. Relevant people were made aware, but the resulting recommendations were not acted upon. And in 2019, all charges of homicide were dismissed from this case. Cristina Serra is a Brazilian journalist. She's formed her opinions on this disaster over the eight years that she's been reporting on it. Do you know why homicide was dropped? The voice of Pulama, our producer. Because they have very good lawyers. The company, the company and the executives, they have the best lawyers here in Brazil. So it wasn't because they proved that they didn't commit homicide. No, let let me see. How can I explain this? It's a a, a very personal perception. Why the criminal charges about homicide were dismissed? I think that's because the justice system, the judicial system in Brazil is very friendly to companies and to their executives. Months after the collapse, Pamela was sitting in her temporary home with her son Nicholas after he had been released from hospital. Just 21 years old, she was grieving the loss of her five-year-old daughter, caring for her son, who was traumatised, and she was heavily pregnant. She heard a knock at her door. At that time, Renova knocked on our door and offered me and Nicholas three psychologists at once. And they all came into the house. I remember they sat down and started playing with Nicholas. It was the Renova Foundation who had come to offer her and Nicholas therapy. 
The Renova Foundation was set up in 2016 by Samarco with support from its owners and shareholders, BHP and Valley. In English, Renova translates to renew, and that's what they promised to do. The Renova Foundation has a very well put together website. It shows photos of people hard at work, before and after photos of cleanup efforts, and contains lots of copy about the great work that they've done. It doesn't look like for people outside the Renova Foundation. Renova Foundation is Samarco. Samarco is Renova Foundation. It's the same thing for the affected. I, I'm trying to find a word to, uh, to, to define it. Uh, we say in Portuguese, it's a fachada, biombo. It's um, We say in English, uh, a lion in sheep's clothing. Yes, perfect. Yes, that's it. At first glance, it seems like Renova has been very successful in achieving their mission. But the people affected by the dam collapse tell a very different story. Monica Dos Santos was a resident of Bento Rodriguez. She's been communicating with Renova since they were established. Renova, ela vem fazendo uma propaganda. The companies, they set up this Renova Foundation in order to compensate us. And they've been very fast in, in publicizing and communicating via campaigns that they are doing um, the very best that they can. And not only that, they say that they are giving us even better environments than we used to have. And they tell the public in these marketing campaigns that they are consulting us. You know... They are consulting us, but nothing that we're asking for is being done. They say that they are creating new houses that are better than the ones we had, that they are more beautiful, but that's not what we asked for. I, myself, am part of a committee of victims that gets consulted, and I am constantly telling people that whatever is being propagated by these architects who are working with the Henova Foundation is not true. They're saying one thing and doing another, and we continue waiting for a solution that never comes. Eu sou Letícia Oliveira, eu sou militante do movimento dos atingidos por barragens no Brasil e moro na cidade de Mariana. Letícia Oliveira is a representative for the Brazilian charity MABE, or the Movement of People Affected by Dams. She's been working with victims of the Fundao Dam collapse since 2015 and has seen firsthand the interactions victims have with Renova. What we see a lot is a lot of failure to deal with things and also an attempt to mistreat things or to mishandle things. We see a lot of problems not getting solved and it seems like there is an attempt to delay dealing with problems for as long as possible. When people complain, we often hear that they respond by saying, this is not a responsibility for the companies, or this is not a responsibility for Renova. They try to say that people are making things up, or that these problems are not the company's fault, and there is an attempt to also handle the problems of just some of the people, but not everyone. At Mabi, we see this as an effort that they are making to be able to advertise that they have solved the problem that they have created when they haven't really solved the problem for everyone. And to us, this is no surprise. You know, it's a strategy. 
They want to create disputes between people so that some will be helped and some won't. And we see a lot of broken promises. You know, they'll go to people's houses, they'll attend to community meetings, but then they'll not do any of the things that they have said that they would. Whenever a deadline is put on Renova, you can just ignore it. You know that they won't do what they say they would. We reached out to the Renova Foundation for comment in October 2023, and at the time of recording, they have not responded. For people who lost loved ones like Pamela, the help received from Renova was less obscure at first. They were quick to offer her support and some compensation, but she says it didn't last very long. We had someone who looked after our family. She was there every week, asking, are you all right? Do you need anything? But as time went by, everything ended. They thought we had gone better, that the pain had passed, but it hadn't, you know. How long did you have this person who came to check on you? So, Renova started offering me therapy in the beginning of 2016. And after one year, we stopped having her support. It must have lasted from 2016 until the beginning of 2017. Then everyone disappeared. And I remember it very well, you know, because we had a lot of problems and Hanover wasn't there. If you wanted their help, you had to go after it. Pamela's five-year-old daughter, Emmanuel, was killed by the Fundao Dam collapse in 2015. Renova offered her and her family psychological support for just one year. Ana Paula's husband, Edinaldo, was also killed by the dam collapse. She decided not to accept any help from the Renova Foundation. She says she's waiting for the justice system to decide what is owed to her. On the 31st of December, uh, the mortuary called me and told me that I had to go back to the morgue to pick up my husband's remains. You know, at the time, his mother was still so depressed that she was even talking about killing herself. And I didn't want her to suffer again, so I had to do everything by myself. I went back to the cemetery to bury his remains alone. No one was around to help me. Then a San Marco lawyer came along and told me that I'm taking everything personally, that I'm being too emotional, and he cried in front of me because I didn't want to accept his compensation. So Marco's lawyer claimed to the courts that I didn't want help because they offered me a psychologist and I didn't want it. But at the time, they hadn't found his body yet. And I didn't have the ability to sit in a room with a psychologist knowing that his body was still missing. That, that's not denying help. That was me using my energy to do what was best for my husband, to try to find him. Then they claimed I didn't want help. But that's fine. 
I'm still fighting here today, but God willing, one day this circle will close. The wound hasn't been able to heal yet because every day there's a new hurt. According to the Renova Foundation, as of August 2023, they have paid out the equivalent of £5.8 billion in repair costs and compensation. They say this money has gone towards repairing water and general damage and to compensate 431,000 people. But in May of 2023, Carlos Bruno Ferreira, a member of the Federal Public Prosecutor Team working to reach a settlement with the mining companies in Brazil, said, quote, We don't have any information about where this money is being spent. This is information from Renova itself. There is no guaranteed information that these amounts were actually paid. Responding to the claim that Renova had helped over 400,000 people, Carlos said, quote, During the time of the renegotiation, Renova frequently updates the data on their website. They do this as a strategy. The more they put on the website that they have paid, it gives the image that they are doing a lot, making a lot of progress. For these values, I repeat, we have no audit. They are values offered by Renova. Why does a company of this size not have the money to repair the damage they've caused? And why has no one been punished? In 2018, three years after the collapse, the Renova Foundation was finally granted the planning permission to begin working on a new permanent settlement for the residents of Bento Rodriguez. The first families to be moved to their permanent homes didn't receive the keys until May of 2023, almost eight years following the disaster. There are people dying without the chance to see the new houses. I went to the cemetery of Mercedes in the old Bento Rodrigues, and I counted 10 people dead after the disaster. And th these people, certainly they were waiting for their houses, but they didn't have time to see their new houses. Of course, you have to consider that the COVID pandemic uh, is one of the reasons of this. You have almost eight years dealing with all this situation. The pandemic took two years. So, okay, you have six years waiting for the construction of the new village. And you are not talking about a big city. You are talking about a small village with very simple houses. It's difficult to understand why it, it, it takes so long to, to build this village. But some residents of Bento Rodriguez, like Mauro da Silva, don't want to move there. He says he doesn't want to deal with the empty promises of the Renova Foundation and doesn't believe that this new place will be anything like the home he once knew. Instead, he and his friends and family visit the site of Bento Rodriguez each week to remember the way life once was. 
espírito de pertencimento. Né? É... What brings me back to Bento is a sheer feeling of belonging. That place is entangled in me. It cannot be separated. It cannot be discerned from who I am. I return because I am fighting for my land, and this is a struggle that I feel called to do. I am called not to give up. This is my land. I am part of it. My roots are there, and I won't give up on my roots. The people of Minas Gerais are deeply and inextricably connected to the land, like a forest is to the earth, a forest as beautiful and complex as those that once could be found along the Dose River. No one planted those trees or the underlying vegetation. All grew naturally. They came by wind, by animal or by water. And slowly, together, they created a home. The saplings depending on older trees to guide their growth and to protect them. The fungal networks beneath connecting the generations, allowing them to share their information. The moss, lichen and forest animals all playing their part to keep everything in balance, not taking more than they needed to survive supporting each and every species so that all could thrive. All in perfect harmony. The towns of Bento Rodriguez, Baja Longa, Paracatu de Baixo, Gestira, all were ecosystems too, where people felt safe and connected, their wisdom and knowledge passed down from generation to generation but they were uprooted. They were torn from their soil and moved to cities and towns far away from each other. Their connections were broken and their natural environments destroyed. We asked Pamela Isabel, who lived in Bento, if she thought it would ever be possible to rebuild what she used to have in her community. Não. Não porque uma que as pessoas mudaram muito. No. Because people have changed a lot. If I tell you that there are people I'll never see again. I'm serious. There are people I'll never see again. I haven't seen them for eight years and even if I did I would know who they are. I also think about the people who are dying, who really wanted to get Bento back, but they're dying. Those people will be missed, and then their families will move away. We've become very disunited. We've all been separated to different corners. We're all so far away from each other. I don't think the same unity we had will ever return. You know, this whole thing, it's so strange. You used to sit in the middle of the street to chat. Sometimes you'd have a bonfire and everyone would speak to each other. Today, you go to the new settlement, Renova's building, and it seems like you're in a condominium and everything is so 
strange. You see more walls than trees. They took away our waterfall. We no longer have a waterfall like we used to have in Bent. We had clean water, a giant lake where you could swim in it. We don't have that anymore. There's no community activities because our community activities, which used to be swimming in waterfalls and things like that, they have been taken away from us. Hard as I tried to convey to you what has been lost, even if we played you every interview in its entirety, there would still be thousands of people who would want to talk to you and tell you about what happened to them. They would say, imagine if someone came into your home and told you that you had to leave right now, you couldn't take any of your things with you and you'd never be able to return to the neighborhood you lived in. They would tell you that you might never see any of your friends and family again. And if you grew up near the water, they'd point to it and say, you can never go near that again. And yet, against this backdrop of unfathomable loss, no one has yet to be held accountable for what happened on November 5th, 2015. As the court system continues to litigate this case in Brazil, the victims are struggling to hold on to hope. I think we still have a little hope. A little bit. Deep down, I know we have hope. But it's kind of hard, you know, because it's been eight years and they haven't given us any concrete answers. At the beginning, they gave us hope, but nowadays, I don't know anymore. In my opinion, I don't think there's any justice. Or there isn't in Brazil. In 2017, a man named Tom Goodhead stepped off a plane in Brazil. He was visiting Rio de Janeiro to meet a lawyer who wanted to tell him about a disaster that had happened in Minas Gerais in 2015. The lawyer told Tom that he didn't believe the Brazilian state would ever bring this case to court, and he wanted to know if they could try the case in England's courts. I saw Beto Rodriguez for the first time, um, which was was astonishing. I mean, I always describe to people now it's just you know it's just destruction. It's sort of almost post-apocalyptic when you see the the sight there and what has happened. I mean, the situation was just uh, insane. Dead River is narrated by me, Liz Bonin, and investigated by journalist Christina Serra and Pulama Kaufman. The podcast is produced by Pulama Kaufman. Stories are meant to be shared, so if, like us, you think this is a powerful and important story, please let your friends and family know about Dead River. And if you're enjoying this series, please leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening.